We don't know what happened during Noah's first 479 years, but when he turned 480, God told him to build a zoo for endangered species. A zoo that needed to float. This is The Millennials, Part 4. Construction projects today go pretty quick, even the big ones. In 1987, when they started work on the tunnel under the English Channel, they had to dig a tube 31 miles long that went under the sea. But once they started, it took only seven years to finish. In 1994, China began construction on the Three Gorges Dam across the Yangtze River. It's the largest dam on Earth, but they did the main part of it in just 12 years. By comparison, building the Ark probably took over a century. To get a sense of this kind of timeline, go back a few hundred years. In 1160, the Bishop of Paris wanted to build a new church on an island in the middle of the Seine, the river that runs through the center of the city. The island already had the ruins of an earlier Roman temple to Jupiter, as well as a couple of older churches, but the bishop wanted to combine all of that and make a cathedral. The Pope placed the foundation stone for the new building in 1163. After that, it took 87 years to finish the main part of the project, and another century for the rest of the details to get done. That's something close to 190 years between the foundation stone and the finishing touches. Think about that. You could be born 50 years after construction began, live to be 100, and die without ever seeing the cathedral complete. Go over to England, and the timeline's even longer. Over there, they started work on York Minster around the year 1225 and they only finished it 247 years later. That's the kind of timeline Noah's working with here. Building this cargo ship a quarter the size of the Titanic, it's going to take the next 12 decades of his life. Genesis doesn't tell us how Noah started work on the Ark, but I don't picture him heading out to cut trees that first day. Big projects, they don't begin with construction, they begin with research. It's true, it took only 12 years to build the Three Gorges Dam, but that came after they debated the idea for 70 years. It's true, it took only 7 years to dig the tunnel under the English Channel, but you can trace the idea back most of two centuries to 1802, when one of Napoleon's engineers first suggested a way to do it. Big projects take lots of research and planning. God did give Noah the blueprints for the Ark, but we have no reason to think Noah knew how to build a boat. So I wonder if when he started his research, he went to see what he could learn from people who did. Now, I should be clear here and say that we don't know anything about boats in Noah's day. We don't even know if they had them. But boats are the best way to move something heavy. The Romans recognized that. They figured out that it was cheaper to ship grain all the way across the Mediterranean than haul it over about 75 miles of land. And if the Romans came to that conclusion, Perhaps the people in Noah's day did too. And if they had boats, they probably had shipyards to build them. Historically, there are a couple of common ways to build a shipyard, and both methods have to do with how you get the vessel off dry land, where you build it, and out into the water. The first version uses what's called a slipway. 
The ship is built on rails that slope up out of the water with the stern, the back of the boat, closest to the shore. When the hull is finished, workers grease the skids that run underneath it, and the boat slides backward down this ramp into the water. Slipways work for launching really big ships. That's how they launched the Titanic. And beyond that, the idea is pretty old. Researchers have found sloped ramps among the ruins of 2,500-year-old ship sheds in Piraeus, the port city near Athens that once housed the Athenian fleet. Slipways work, but at the same time, when you launch a boat this way, there's a lot that can go wrong. When the boat hits the water, the stern may float up and drive the bow down into the ramp. On the other hand, the stern may reach the end of the rails and plunge down, twisting the belly of the ship against the slipway and damaging the hull. In September of 1907, an Italian shipyard launched the SS Princesa Yolanda. It was the largest passenger ship built in Italy up to that point. Crowds gathered to watch the event. But instead of a celebration, they got to see the ship teeter over on its side and sink, leaving only the top few feet above the water. Slipways are great when they work, but there's a safer option. Rather than taking the ship to the water, you bring the water to the ship. And to do that, you need a dry dock. A dry dock is, in essence, a ship-sized hole you dig by the coast with watertight doors you can open. You build the ship inside this hollowed-out area, and then, when you're ready, you let the water in, float the ship free of its supports, and sail out through the doors into the sea with none of the anxiety that comes from careening down a slipway out of control. Dry docks are nothing new either. The Egyptians used something like it, maybe for maintenance, on a huge 420-foot ship around 2,200 years ago. Slipways and dry docks are both old technology. We don't know if they had them in Noah's day, but if they did, I imagine the dry dock was lots closer to what Noah would have wanted to use for the ark. That said, there was a problem with all these systems. All these shipyards had to be near the coast, where it would be easy to get the boats out into the water when you were done building it. And Noah probably didn't want to build the ark there, because a shoreline is a bad place to keep a ship when you're expecting a storm. In an earthquake, it's the shallow water near the shoreline that causes tsunamis. If Noah tried to avoid that by going inland but stayed down near sea level, as soon as the ark floated free, he'd be running into trees and hills and buildings and trying to avoid all these obstacles that might try to sink him. Both the shoreline and low elevation were bad options. Instead, Noah needed something else. Somewhere that would keep the ark away from obstacles and, when the flood did come, allow it to launch directly into deep water. And for that, the best idea was probably somewhere high. Maybe somewhere very high. Noah likely built the ark at the summit of one of the tallest hills he could find. He knew that the flood would get up there, but by the time it did, everything the ark might run into would already be underwater. It would be like launching from a dry dock. But in his case, flooding the dry dock was flooding the world. With that background, think about the logistics Noah faced. He didn't only have to figure out the ship. He first had to assemble everything that he would need just to have a place to build the ship. He had to find the hill, clear the trees, level the ground. He needed to lay out roads, put up cranes and scaffolding, build tool sheds and support buildings. Because it was only when that stuff was done that he could really start to build the Ark itself. And for the Ark, 
the amount of wood here is daunting. When the British built the HMS Victory, a warship from the mid-1700s, they needed more than 2,000 oak trees, or in terms of land area, they had to clear-cut 60 acres of oak forest just to get the wood for that one ship. This is a very rough estimate, but if you use those numbers and scale the Victory up to the size of the Ark, then you'd need more like 7,300 trees, or 220 acres of forest, to get enough wood to build the Ark. And we don't know if these numbers include the wood that got wasted. During the era when they constructed ships like the Victory, as much as 60% of the wood meant for the boat got thrown away or taken by workers and used for other stuff. So Noah needed, at a minimum, thousands of trees to build the Ark, a huge amount more for all the other stuff, and it's not like he could just cut down the trees and use them. Fresh-cut timber is wet. It's still full of all the water the tree used to function while it was standing. When that wood dries, it shrinks and twists. The ends might split and crack it open. That's not what you want to use to build a boat. So after the trees are cut down and sliced into boards, before you can work with the wood, you have to stack it and let it dry. The timber used for building the HMS Victory it sat out for several years before they used it. Noah has this laundry list of tasks to do, and there's a point here, after he's done his research, where you can imagine that he starts to hire help. Some of what he needed to do was just manual labor, people to clear the land or build the roads. But I also wonder if he could find boat-building specialists and hire them too. A few hundred years ago, Venice was this sort of a place. In the Middle Ages, Venice was a hub of merchants and traders, and for that they needed ships, lots of ships. So in 1104, they built this factory dedicated to shipbuilding. It's called the Venetian Arsenal, and it was the peak of manufacturing during the Middle Ages. In that factory, they built things ahead of time and kept an inventory of ships' parts in kit form so they could put a boat together and launch it in the shortest time possible. They would even use an assembly line of sorts. They'd slide a completed ship's hull along a canal, adding the final supplies and gear as it went. So by the end of the channel, it was done and ready to sail out into the lagoon. According to one record, they launched 10 ships in six hours. There's another story of them building a ship in the time it took a visiting king to eat dinner. A lot of this speed came from stockpiling parts to build their boats, but there's more to it than that. Venice's success linked directly to how well their ships worked. So the city had strict quality controls. They marked every spool of rope for what it could be used for. The government held workers personally responsible if a mast broke or if one of their watertight seals didn't hold. Workers in Venice were experts. They had to know what they were doing. If something like that existed in Noah's day, there's a chance Noah could have hired some of those people to come and help him build the ark. But in my mind, that's a risky choice. Genesis says the world was evil continually, evil all the time at this point. How do you hire those sorts of people and trust that they would do quality work? Besides that, maybe the workers focused on building ships fast rather than building them well. When Julius Caesar first invaded Britain in 55 BC, his ships were a weak spot. It's true, they didn't need to be great. They just had to get him the 42 miles across the English Channel and back but they didn't quite make it. 
After crossing the channel, a storm damaged enough of them that Roman soldiers had to salvage parts from the worst wrecks in order to repair the others and have enough boats just to get back to France. Over the next winter, Caesar ordered his troops to construct new ships and repair the old ones. They built about 600 of them, but when he crossed the channel the next summer, things went about the same way. Another storm battered the ships so much, Caesar sent back a message to the mainland telling them to build more, while some of his own troops spent 10 days hauling the ships up on shore and working around the clock doing repairs so they wouldn't risk being stranded in Britain. This ark God told Noah to build, it needed to be better than that. He couldn't pull his ship up on shore and do repairs if something went wrong. There wasn't going to be a shore. So, while it's possible Noah hired people to help him build the ark, I doubt it. He couldn't risk hiring workers who might cut corners. Of all the boats in the history of the world, this lifeboat, the ark, it had to be done right. The good news here, though, is that Noah probably did have some help. We don't know, but there's reason to think that at least his dad and granddad were there. And if so, at this point, Methuselah is about 850 years old. And that's old even by the standards of the time. For younger help, though, Noah had to wait. When God told Noah about the flood and commanded him to build a boat, he gave him a promise. God said that this cargo ship would save him, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives. The thing is, up to that point, Noah probably didn't have any kids. You'd think that Genesis just doesn't mention them. But I looked into it, and the way Genesis talks about Noah, when God made this promise, Noah was probably childless. God telling him about the flood was also God promising him that someday he'd have kids. It takes 20 years, but then the boys start arriving. The first one is Japheth, born when Noah was 500 years old. Two years later, it's Shem. And then, sometime after that, Ham. And this isn't too soon. Noah needed all the help he could get. Researchers estimate it took 40,000 man-hours to build a 100-foot Viking longboat. And this ark, it had more than 100 times the volume of that ship. At this point, perhaps, you can start to picture what the construction site looked like. The area is clear of trees. The keel might be laid out with the first ribs and braces standing up next to it. The stacks of lumber dry in various places, curing until they're ready to be used. Maybe small buildings are scattered around the site, a blacksmithing forge for making tools, some sheds for storing things. And with all of this at the top of a hill, Noah's got to be attracting attention. People coming up the road and watching, trying to figure out what it is that he's doing. We don't have many details, but we get the idea that Noah talked to people like this. The Bible calls him a, quote, preacher of righteousness, end quote. And I imagine Noah laying out the whole story, telling them about the flood and the ark and the need for everyone to return to following God. And if anyone asked why, why Noah believed there would be a flood, the answer for him was easy. God said there would be one. For Noah, it came down to that. He'd made a habit of believing what God said and obeying him. But to everyone else, they probably thought Noah was nuts. And there's some room for sympathy here. Try to see the world through the eyes of the people listening to Noah. And be honest now, what would you think? This is a person who says that God talks to him, 
He says God told him to build this zoo in a boat, and he's doing it maybe just as far away from water as you can get, because that's where it'll be safest when the sea level goes up, maybe hundreds of feet, and sweeps everything away. I mean, try to imagine talking to someone like that. They're either telling the truth, or they're insane. They're not really leaving you a middle ground. And the worst bit of the whole story is this nonsense about the flood. Where's all the water going to come from? If you believed the story God told, the land rose out of the sea at creation. Is Noah saying it's going to sink back down? Today, we might wonder about rain, but people then, maybe not. Earlier on in Genesis, it says, quote, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. End quote. That story's from right before God created Adam, around 1,500 years ago at this point. But there's no reason to think that system had changed. So when Noah's warning people about a flood of water, they might be living in a world where it's never rained. This idea is debated, but think for a moment about what we know about the water cycle. In the water cycle, the sun heats up some water, it evaporates, it condenses into clouds, the little droplets join up and get too heavy to stay in the air, and it rains. The problem with explaining the water cycle that way is the step in the middle, where the water vapor condenses. That doesn't just happen. Water vapor doesn't just condense. It needs something to condense onto, some dust particle or little bit of pollution. That's where contrails behind jet engines come from. A jet burns fuel, and whatever doesn't burn comes out as little particles. Then, the water vapor that's in the air and the vapor made from burning the jet fuel, it condenses onto those particles and you see clouds, contrails, forming behind each engine of the plane. The same thing is true for other clouds. You need those little bits of dust in the air to get the water vapor to condense. The scientists who study cirrus clouds say that this dust usually comes from widespread farming or from metal particles emitted from factories burning things. In Noah's world, maybe they didn't have those things yet, or didn't have them at the same scale we do, and their air was clean. Beyond that, I wonder if wind plays an important part. Today, we have lots of wind. In the Hami Basin part of the Gobi Desert, dark rocks absorb enough sunlight to superheat the air. That temperature difference then helps generate winds that reach 75 miles an hour once or twice a month. That's like having a Category 1 hurricane 12 times a year. In 2007, the wind in this area blew 10 train cars clean off the track. Over in Africa, the Sahara gets windstorms too. In satellite images, you can see these storms blowing sand out over the Atlantic Ocean, sometimes carrying dust all the way to the Amazon. When God created the world, deserts probably weren't part of it. Instead, if forests and grasslands covered the ground, they would absorb the heat from the sun and the wind would never get worse than a breeze. Their roots would also trap the soil so it couldn't blow away. The dust storms in North America's Great Plains during the 1930s got that way in part because people plowed up the grass to farm the land and without those roots, nothing held the soil in place anymore. Maybe the world in Noah's day didn't have that issue. If God balanced the Earth's climate and geography at creation, perhaps that system still hummed along. Every day, blue skies and calm breezes. And if that's what the world was like, Noah's warning people about a flood 
when they've never even seen rain. How would you react? Year in and year out, Noah keeps preaching to the people, they keep ignoring him, and he assembles this ship. You can picture ribs going up and then the framing going on it. Maybe planks start getting added to the hull, stacking up higher and higher, while inside they begin to add those watertight bulkheads and the stalls, the little nests God told him to make for the animals. And in this way, decades go by. His sons become teenagers, and then men in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. And usually when we talk about his sons, in this part of the story, they come across a bit two-dimensional. Names and ages only. Boys who help their dad build a boat. But reality is more complex than that. Japheth, Shem, and Ham, they may have grown up with the Ark as the background to everything they did. But that didn't mean they believed what Noah said about the flood. Think about it from their perspective. On one side, you have your dad, who says that a flood is coming and the ark is the only way to survive it. On the other side is the rest of the world, probably millions or billions of people, who think your dad is some sort of a cross between a crazy hermit and a religious zealot. If you're in the shoes of these three men, why would you believe dad when no one else does? Now take that idea even further and think about Noah's wife and his daughters-in-law, because somehow all three boys got married. Think about those people. We don't know anything about them, but they all had to deal with that same question. Do you believe Noah or ignore him? Is he telling the truth or lying? Is he rational or insane? And remember, the world's not getting any better here. Noah's probably the target for a lot of abuse. And if you pick his side, you're in for that abuse too. That's what you're signing up for. We often gloss over these people in the story, but their choices weren't a foregone conclusion. They always had the chance to switch sides and join the rest of the world. But they didn't. For some reason, maybe because they looked at the Garden of Eden, or because they heard Methuselah's stories about Adam, or because they saw what other people did when they rejected God, for some reason we don't know, these seven people decided the world was wrong and Noah was right. And that choice makes them some of the most significant people in history. At this point, the hourglass is maybe down to the last few months of those 120 years. And Noah and his family close in on the final stages of construction. I imagine scaffolding around the sides with crane towers and block and tackle pulleys swinging stacks of planks the 50 feet up to the top deck. Once there, they begin to add the roof and cut in the windows, and at some point, they start to frame the door on the side. This door is one of the few details Genesis specifically mentions. God told Noah to, quote, set the door of the ark in its side, end quote. And I imagine something that goes maybe into the third floor of the ship. You don't want it further down where it'll be below the waterline. And it's probably toward one end. The middle of the boat would be a weak spot. You wouldn't want to cut a hole there. And this is a heavy door because it's both big enough for everything that needs to get inside and it's as thick as the hull on the ark. Maybe there's been a rough cutout of this door for a while, but now someone starts the final framing while other members of the family put together the ramp that reaches from the ground up to this opening, so they'll soon be able to start loading things on board. At this point, the ship is nearly done, 
And for people watching from a distance, seeing the Ark take its final shape, that's got to be a bit of an ominous sight. For years, you've heard Noah talk about the flood that's coming, the flood that will destroy the world, the flood that will come when the Ark is done. Until now, you've always ignored him. And that was easy when the Ark was just a skeleton. But now it's almost finished. And if you stand there and can see it in the distance, at the top of the hill, you can imagine the foreboding feeling you might get. The word Genesis uses for Ark has the same root word as the Egyptian word for coffin. And that might be the psychology here. Anytime you look up there, you see a coffin. Your coffin. Maybe people ignored that feeling, and they went about their normal routines. But maybe not. Because I can imagine, for the hundred plus years Noah and everyone else is trying to build the ark, they also had to watch out for vandalism, and sabotage, and maybe even arson. For people sneaking through the place at night, trying to set fire to the boat or to the woodsheds. This is all speculation. Genesis doesn't say anything about it if it happened. But it would be a natural reaction, right? Think about all the stories that might have happened in that 120 years that maybe didn't make it into the abridged version of the story that Genesis gives us. Whatever those lost details are, at this point the Ark has made it to its final stage, and Noah and his family start to haul huge loads of wood up to the site. They break the wood down and they start to feed it into furnaces, because on top of everything they needed for the boat itself, they also needed even more wood because they needed to extract the oils from it to make tar for the waterproof coating God told Noah to paint on both the inside and outside of the ship. Getting tar from trees isn't as unusual as it might sound. Until the last couple of centuries, this was actually a major industry. The American colonies used to produce enough tar to provide 80% of England's supply. North Carolina put so much energy into burning stumps and extracting the resin that people from that state got the nickname Tar Heel, a name they still use for some state sports teams today. From there, if you go even further back, a thousand years ago, the Vikings used tar from trees to waterproof their longships. In fact, the size of fire pits in Scandinavia spikes just around the time the Vikings needed large volumes of pitch in order to waterproof the fleets they sent out on raids. From historical records, we know that a tree a bit less than two feet in diameter might give you 50 gallons of tar. So Noah and his family have to be hauling huge amounts of wood to the site to waterproof the inside and outside of the ark. They may have been doing this the whole time, but now, with the finishing touches done, I imagine a final coat. I imagine them checking and double-checking all the thin spots. Paintings sometimes make the arc out to be this attractive wood color, and pine tar is fairly clear in thin layers. But as Noah and his family put a final coat on, the arc becomes this dark, smudgy brown. It becomes the color of tar. And that's the picture you see when Noah starts to load the food. God told Noah to store up, quote, every sort of food that is eaten, end quote. And this was all something Noah had to be doing while the ark was being built. He had to be growing the food and collecting it and storing it and drying it. And now, with all of that stuff ready, he starts bringing up the grain and the vegetables and the dried foods and seeds for planting and stuff for people to eat and stuff for animals to eat. Load after load goes up the ramp, in the door, and down into the hold. And it's maybe here 
that a crowd starts to gather. They realize that the Ark is done, that the fires aren't burning anymore, the last coat of waterproof paint is finished, and they hear that Noah's loading supplies, and they come to see. This crowd gathers, and as I picture it, that's when you hear the rumbling. It's not from the sky, it comes from the forest, a tramping sound. Imagine being there the moment everybody hears this noise. You all look around, back and forth, to see what it is. And just at the edge of the clearing, a lion steps out between a couple of trees, with another lion right behind him. Raccoons come out in another spot, and then animals are everywhere. Something like a rhino, monkeys, gazelles, rabbits, snakes, bears, wild animals, tame animals. They all emerge from the forest and walk toward the ark, maybe not even noticing you're there, only looking at the ramp and going up and through the open door. You're staring at this, everyone's staring at it, when another sound comes. This one's a whirring, and it comes from the sky. Now you look up and you see that it's the sound of birds, and not a few of them, but flocks coming from all directions, all headed for that same door. Scholars here emphasize that this was something supernatural. Noah didn't go find the animals, trap them, and haul them back in cages. The animals came to Noah on their own. And maybe while it's going on, someone notices that while most of the animals are showing up in pairs, some of them come in groups of seven or 14. Scholars translate it both ways. And the bigger groups, those are the animals used for sacrifices. Imagine watching that. I don't know how to describe the feeling all these people might have had. Think about realizing that the animals, they're all listening to Noah and getting on the ark. And you're not. That had to be an uncomfortable thought. At first, I imagine everyone in the crowd getting this wave of anxiety. They look at each other nervously, and no one has anything to say. If they mocked Noah a moment before, now they're quiet. There'd be a lot of fidgeting, no one making eye contact. But, and this is key, somewhere, someone in the crowd maybe mutters something like, they must be after all that food Noah's been stockpiling. The idea is quiet at first, right? But it breaks the spell. People pick up on it. They start to find other explanations and put out their own theories. Maybe Noah's been secretly training the animals. Maybe it's all part of a setup. Maybe he has some sort of whistle or noise he's using. It's got all the animals in a trance. He's just trying to trick us. Remember, with any propaganda, the explanation doesn't have to be perfect. Just good enough. And with all the years of practice listening to good enough excuses for why the Garden of Eden was a hoax or how the flaming sword was nothing to worry about or how Enoch didn't go to heaven, he's just a missing person. After all those sorts of stories, people were probably good at latching on to bad ideas. And I think the same thing happened here. They found a rational explanation, maybe not plausible, but possible, so they could explain something unexplainable and cut God out of the picture. This sort of thing is called motivated reasoning. Today, there's a whole theory in psychology that deals with it. People want to draw a particular conclusion, but they can only do it if they find enough evidence to make that conclusion reasonable. That's what I imagine people doing here, finding plausible reasons to dismiss this final piece of evidence that Noah was telling the truth. And once you get to that place, where no matter the evidence, you can still find an explanation to keep believing whatever you want to believe? Well, there's nothing else anyone can say that'll convince you. 
For 120 years, God kept warning these people because he loved them. He wanted them to live. But no one believed him. And now, the animals coming on the ark? That was, perhaps, God's last warning. If people wouldn't pay attention now, they wouldn't ever pay attention. And I have to ask, what is it that made these people so good at ignoring evidence? Of the, at least, tens of millions of people in the world that had Eden, the flaming sword, Enoch, the animals getting on the ark on their own, why did nearly all of them ignore Noah's warning? Was it just peer pressure? They figured safety in numbers? Voting with the majority? Did they go with the crowd because they worried about what everyone else would think of them if they stepped out? Where did the habit of ignoring God start? It's a cautionary tale, right? When are we doing the same things they did? What evidence are we ignoring? The ark's almost full of animals, and at this point, Methuselah is old. He passed the previous known age record seven years ago, and now he's 969. He's outlived a lot of people in his life, and maybe gone to so many funerals. Adam died 700 years ago, then Seth, then Enish. Each time that happened, Methuselah lost an old friend. And then, just five years ago, his own son Lamech died too. Now, besides Noah, only Methuselah was left. And as Noah got ready to board the ark, Methuselah didn't. He wasn't going. He'd spent his life in this world of people who lived a thousand years. And he'd die here too. Because at 969, Methuselah was on his deathbed. I picture Noah there with him, sitting next to the world's oldest man. And as Methuselah closed his eyes for the last time, I wonder if he looked out at the ark and thought about his name. We don't always know what names meant in the Bible, but scholars take their best guess, and while some think the name Methuselah referred to an armed warrior of some sort, others translate it as something else. They say his name meant, when he is dead, it shall be sent, or he dieth and the sending forth. And there's some suspicion that it was a prophetic name, a name his father Enoch gave him. And maybe in that society, it was well known that when Methuselah died, judgment would come. Earlier in Genesis, it referred to a book of family genealogy. And as Methuselah dies, I picture Noah leaning over that book and filling in the blank for the age of the world's oldest man. And then God comes to Noah and tells him it's time to get on the ark. And he gathers up the records and calls his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. And together, they start up the ramp into the ship. Noah had to be sad that this world, this beautiful home God made, is about to be destroyed. Sad that no one but his family listened to the warning. But he's done everything God asked him to do. And there's peace in that. The crowd outside maybe watched them go up the ramp. Noah's climbing into something they see as a coffin. But that's where they miss the point. Noah's taking a leap of faith going inside. Because he knows that risking death to obey God, that's the only way to live. And he also realizes what they don't. The coffin isn't what's inside the ark. It's what's outside it. Noah gets up to the top of the ramp, and standing there in the doorway, he smells the pine scent of all that wood freshly waterproofed. Then, the big door starts to swing. 
Picture something like the door to a bank vault, layers of wood all laminated together, as thick as the hull of the ark. That door starts to swing closed, and Genesis says, quote, And the Lord shut him in. End quote. You get something like this during the days of the Venetian naval empire. They used to build cargo ships then that could carry horses, but the horses had to be transported down in the hold of the ship, and so they loaded them in through a door that was below the waterline. It was only after the horses got aboard that the workers could close up the door and caulk around the frame. They were sealing the horses inside and making the ship watertight. God does the same thing here. With Noah on board, God seals the seam around the door, waterproofing the only part of the ship Noah couldn't reach. In the Babylonian flood story, the builder of the ark has to shut himself inside. Here, God does it. It shows something of the special care God took to keep Noah safe. People had ignored God for 120 years, but now the hourglass was empty. If they were determined to reject him, God wouldn't force them. That's never been God's way. He let everyone make their decision, and then he shut the door. Inside or outside, at that moment, everyone had made their final choice. And you'd think with the door closing like that, people in the crowd would get nervous. But then nothing happened. The sky was still blue, the water level just where it had always been. And perhaps, within a few minutes, people went back to their lives. They talked about food, they went off to parties, they got married. And a week went by. According to Jewish tradition, it was seven days of mourning for Methuselah. Seven days where Noah and his family waited. But then came the eighth day, a day perhaps near the middle of October. That morning, maybe Noah noticed the animals acting different. There's data showing that birds hunker down when a storm is on its way, and that sharks swim out to deeper water if a hurricane is coming. Maybe Noah first noticed the animals, and then through the windows high up on the side of the ark, he saw that the sky didn't show blue, but gray. Quote, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth. From a population that may have numbered in the billions, soon there will be only eight people left on Earth. And those eight face the terror of an ocean that never ends. It's taken a bit over two years, but I'm calling this the end of season one. With the flood, God reset the world. Season two is what happens next. Until then, if you want to tunnel into any of the details from this show, WiderBible.com has articles, references, and links to get you started. The website also has a place to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.